Well, this is our final session, session 13, and we will talk about the core value of compassion like Christ. And we're just trying to summarize these essential virtues and see how we can practically apply them to our lives. I want to spend a few moments here at the beginning, and and I will make some illustrations throughout this session. I want to talk about a lady that many of you knew. Her name is Ruth Morgan, and many of you knew her husband Bill as well. The rebellious teens and the runaways and the unwed mothers and the battered wives with whom Ruth Morgan worked when she was here on the earth, most of them affectionately called her Other Mother. She started a Bible study for girls in a reformatory near one of the bases, and God really blessed that ministry, and through that ministry gave Ruth a love for needy girls. And that initiated a lifelong ministry to troubled girls until the Lord called her home in 1998. Ruth had no formal Bible training, never attended Bible college. She had just completed high school in her um, educational experience. But she and Bill, whatever, wherever they were stationed, on whatever base, would find a Bible-preaching church and link up with that church and would become very, very involved, as much as, as much as Bill could, and, of course, Ruth was very involved. And even though she did not have any formal Bible training, because she was always under the preaching of God's Word, and because she was a student of the Bible herself, she knew her Bible well, and she taught it to others. Ruth and Bill brought their family to Greenville in 1968, when her own children began attending Bob Jones University. And as was their habit, and I hope it is yours, they joined and became active in a local Bible-preaching church. And that happened to be the church that my wife and I were attending at that time. As her children graduated and got married and moved out, her home became a depot for caring for troubled girls. And they had two upstairs bedrooms, and almost all the time there was a girl in each one of them, and the apartment downstairs in their home usually housed um, a missionary family who was home on furlough. She involved the women in our church in uh, Bible studies, both to teach the women how to learn the Bible and how to teach the Bible, but also to help these women and train these women to help work with the troubled girls. In fact, she started my wife on a lifelong ministry of teaching women by asking Patty to speak and, and, and deliver a workshop at a women's retreat at our church. And that really launched my wife's ministry to women. Patty and, and I admired Ruth as we saw her involvement with the girls at church. And when I became dean of students in 1981... I got to watch her up close because some of her girls were starting to be enrolled in the academy and in the university. And Ruth and I ministered together in the lives of several of these girls. I attended her, her funeral in 1998 and I wept with joy as I looked around and saw many, 
of these formerly troubled young ladies who now had families of their own and were in ministry and God was using them. They had been touched by a woman who exhibited biblical compassion. And that's what we're going to be talking about in this session. That beautiful blend of brotherly kindness and love. And I want to illustrate the points with, uh, throughout this session with examples from Ruth's life. Not, not every woman can have a ministry like Ruth. But everyone can and should cultivate the same kind of compassion she had. Not just every woman, every man and woman. I wanted to especially show through this session how the blend of Peter's essential virtues produced a robust compassion in this woman that was both tough and tender, courageous and kind. And as a result, she made a profound difference in countless lives and exemplified this compassion like few people I have ever known. Well, the question before us often when we look at compassion or look at love is, is love tough or tender? Think about these scenarios. Here's a wife who thinks her husband is too tough on the kids. And so whenever she can, she lets them get by with things because she wants to lighten up just a little bit. And doesn't discipline them when she should because she feels like her husband's already doing too much of this and I need to be the lighter side of all of this. And a great deal of confusion is created in the family. And of course the kids learn how to pit mom and dad against each other in a situation like this. All because there's confusion about tough and tender. I heard recently about a pastor who tried to show that he was really wanting to reach the heart of the teenagers in his Christian school. And therefore, even though the school administrator had expelled a student because of behavior and the teachers were at their wits' ends with him, and this pastor reversed and overruled that decision and brought that boy back because the boy cried big crocodile tears and he wanted to come back and have a second chance. Surprised the school staff and confused them. Because here again, a person is not making a right distinction between things that really um, are different and thinking that compassion is just being tender all of the time. And we'll look in Ruth's life and in the scriptures and see that it is not. Here's a single mom who reads a book about tough love and realizes that she has been a permissive parent for all of these years of her teenage son because she's felt very guilty about the divorce and the rough time it put, it, it, it put her son through. And now he won't come home by a curfew. He won't do anything she says. He won't lift a, a, a hand to do any work around the house. And she realizes she really has to start being tough. Well, all of these people have a wrong understanding of compassion. Ruth was not confused. She knew that love moves freely between toughness and tenderness based on whatever is needed at the moment to advance the mission of forming Christ-likeness in others. Our pastor relied heavily upon Ruth to work with many of the women in the church. And when I talked with him by the phone, he, he said, you know, she had an unusual 
ability to look past a girl's outward appearance. And whether she came to Ruth with a metal-studded collar or a well-worn hand-me-down or a designer outfit, she saw past all of that to the heart of that girl and saw her as a sister in Christ if she was saved and knew how to minister to her. She saw these girls as sisters in Christ, the ones who were saved, children of the same father. Many had been abused. Many, many of them had been abused sexually and physically. And she had an uncanny ability to help each girl see the moral responsibility she had in her responses to what was happening because many of them had gone off into great rebellion and other things for which they were morally responsible for even though they weren't morally responsible for what was done to them. The pastor said she had been lied to by experts and had learned how to sort out the truth from the lies. She tolerated no deception. I would say Ruth was a warm-hearted comforter and a relentless prosecutor. She could get the truth out of anybody. Now, folks, this blend of courage and kindness does not come by really trying really hard to be compassionate and then pulling back when you have to be tough. Biblical love is always compassionate, whether it is addressing sin in someone's life or comforting a hurting soul. Compassion is built by cultivating all that has gone before it. Arete, knowledge, self-control, endurance, and godliness. And as we have seen, compassion rests upon the base of commitment to Christ and has the strength of courage for Christ. Biblical compassion is not sentimental. A mother who cannot bear to see her children deprived of something will be overly protective. Her goal is her own happiness and her children's happiness, and in the process she's sabotaging both. A heavy-fisted father who is overly rigid and unbending is often self-serving. He just wants things to get done and out of the way so he doesn't have to mess with them. And if everybody would do just what I said, we wouldn't have any problems around here. Now get with the program. He's not doing it to try to develop any character and godliness in the children. He's trying to have some peace and quiet for himself. Paul was able to move from one from tenderness and toughness and back and forth because he did not seek to please men but God. Man-pleasers have no courage for Christ. Self-pleasers have no compassion for Christ. Here's what Paul said when he talked about his ministry in Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 2. He said, For you yourselves know that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and, and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Boldness amidst conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. 
Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you. Do you see the tenderness there? We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses and God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now, do you see in Paul's testimony there, do you see the toughness and the tenderness? A godly person is both. Whatever is needed, he's able to give it. This is not a matter of personality. Well, you know, I'm just just kind of a really kind, tender-hearted soul. Usually, that is a very self-protective person who doesn't want to do hard things because he doesn't want to be hurt. It's not a matter of personality here. It's a matter of what does that brother or that sister need to propel them to godliness? Do they need a touch of kindness right now or a touch of rebuke and charging? Whatever they need, you give it to them. Now, you do it all kindly and you do it all graciously and you do it all in the power of the Spirit of God, but you give them whatever they need. I I will say this, that For most of us, one or the other of those comes easier. There are some of us who really like to comfort people and we really enjoy that. And we have to deny ourselves to correct somebody. And then there are other people who are born correctors, it seems like. Sometimes they have the personality of a Brillo pad, too. And they're always, they're always correcting everything that's going on and they need to deny themselves to show some comfort. But a spirit-filled person moves back and forth from those with ease, between those with ease. Compassion like Christ is the crowning beauty of this pillar of core values. It is attractive and displays astonishing tenderness and boldness and wisdom. Speaking of this compassion, Ruth, Ruth's daughter told me that even on the day of her home going, a pastor visited her hospital room whose wife was seriously ill and couldn't make it for this visit. And she spent the bulk of her strength inquiring about this pastor's wife and how she was doing. And she was just minutes away from eternity herself. This was her life. Concern about other people. Whatever they needed at the moment, that's what they got. Commitment, courage, and compassion were not mere window dressings for Ruth. They were values of paramount importance to her. These three together are kind of like what happens or what what is going on with a rocket. The commitment functions like the fins, the wings of that rocket that keep it pointed in the right direction. That's the commitment to this certain thing, this Christ-centeredness. 
The courage functions as the engine propelling it onward, giving it the strength to reach its target. And the compassion is a payload that's delivered to the intended target. And this brotherly kindness and this love that we've looked at in previous session together produce a tender-hearted disciple who seeks the lost and who by his example and effort disciples others to live a Christ-centered life. This was Ruth's testimony. As I mentioned, compassion is not mere sentimentality. Nor is it only helping the down and out with financial or physical needs, although it can involve that. It is much more robust than that. We saw when we studied agape love that love is always mission-minded, seeking the redemption and the restoration of fallen man to the likeness of Jesus Christ to the praise of the glory of God. I don't know that there's anything more convicting for me to think about than this. And that is that our prayers reveal in a most telling way what our personal agendas are. In fact, listen to prayer requests even at at church in small group meetings. What do we pray for most? We pray for the physical needs of people. We pray for the financial needs of people and the emotional needs of people that they would be encouraged. And while that is compassionate, and I'm not discounting that at all, our Lord wants us to have greater concerns than those concerns, although those are concerns. But we must be concerned about other things. Notice the Lord's model prayer in Matthew 6, 9-13, which shows God's agenda. And it breaks down into these phrases, Our Father in Heaven, it begins hallowed be your name. That's a petition. Hallowed be your name. May your name be set apart and thought of as special by all peoples. Your kingdom come. That is a prayer for the spiritual advancement of the reign of God in the earth. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven by me and by all of your people. And then this, give us this day our daily bread. Folks, that is the only petition out of all of these that deals with anything physical. Every other petition deals with spiritual needs of God's people. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. That's a spiritual issue. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That is a spiritual issue. Only one petition in this model prayer is for daily bread, our current physical and financial needs. Everything else is for spiritual matters. These are the spiritual priorities. We have to examine our prayers. Do they really beseech God for the spiritual well-being of His people? For people through their physical needs to be borne up by God, comforted by God, encouraged by God, strengthened by God. The spiritual issues in God's mind always take priority over the physical. So, if our compassion is going to be biblical, the lion's share of what we are doing, as we learned in in talking about agape love, we're going to be, these are going to be efforts that pursue the spiritual needs of other people. Remember, God is on a mission to redeem and restore fallen men to the likeness of His Son, to the praise of His glory. Listen to these comments about agape love. 
if we seek nothing but a man's highest good, we may well have to resist a man. We may well have to punish him. We may well have to do the hardest things to him for the good of his immortal soul. In other words, agape means treating men like God treats them, and that does not mean leaving them unchecked to do as they like. Love, agape love, is not sentimental. Christian love does not shut its eyes to the faults of others. Love is not blind. It will use rebuke and discipline when these are needed. The love which shuts its eyes to all faults and which evades the unpleasantness of all discipline is not real love at all. For in the end, it does nothing but harm to the loved ones. And while biblical compassion is tender-hearted, it does feel the distress that other people are in. It is never sentimental. And by that, meaning it's not governed by emotionality. It's governed by spiritual purposefulness. People often judge an action by its emotional effects. Well, this will make, but that makes this person feel this way. And we certainly have to take that into account. But how they feel is not the most important issue. The most important issue is what needs to be done in their lives for Jesus Christ. What needs to be addressed. A lot of Christians are like doctors who can't stand the sight of blood. You know, they, they, they won't ever perform a surgery because, after all, that would, I mean, that would hurt the patient. He might bleed, and I don't like the sight of blood. So even though he has an inflamed appendix and it has to come out, I'll just give him some anti-inflammatory drugs and I'll give him some painkillers and we'll just see how it comes out. Because he doesn't like pain and he doesn't like blood and I don't like blood. Listen, you have to decide what really needs to be done and do it. And, and a doctor who knows that a patient is in emotional distress will sit down with that patient and say, no, this is going to be difficult here or there and this is going to produce this and you're going to be feeling like this afterwards and here are some things you need to think about with that and I'll be around to encourage you and, and whatever. And he tries to deal with the emotional aspect of it, but he doesn't let the fact that emotions are high override the fact that he needs to do something hard. Biblical compassion is like that. So what is, what is the kind of person that God uses? I found it very interesting to look again at the ministry of our Lord to the churches in Revelation, in Revelation 2 to 3. Our Lord is going to perform some surgery on these churches. And He's going to minister. He's going to do the compassionate thing for them. And I want us to know th two things. That biblical compassion knows the true condition of the person and biblical compassion knows the true remedy. Jesus knew the true condition. When he went to these churches in Ephesus, he knows that they were laboring for him and they had endured much affliction and they, were, they had resisted those who were evil. He knows that in Smyrna, they have faced great tribulation and poverty. He knows that they will soon endure unprecedented suffering. And many will give their lives for Christ. He knows that in Pergamos, that some have been martyred. He knows in Thyatira, that their deeds of love, they have had deeds of love and service and faith. He knows that in Sardis, they have, they have been doing some good works. But he also knows the problems. And he knows that in Ephesus, 
They have lost their commitment to Christ. They have lost the first column virtues. And others of the churches had been infiltrated by the evils of false teaching and immorality. And the compassionate Christ gives encouragement where that is the greatest spiritual need and a rebuke where that is the greatest spiritual need. Christ moves quick, quite easily from tough to tender because compassion, and compassion is not single-dimensional. Christ always has the right remedy because he knows the true condition. That was true of Ruth Morgan as well. I spent some time on the phone with two of the girls that both of us had worked with, Debbie and Becky. Debbie said, I tried to get her to hate me. I didn't want anyone to love me. And Ruth replied to her, Debbie, it doesn't matter how much you try to get me to hate you. You can't stop me from loving you. Debbie stayed in one of the upstairs bedrooms next to Ruth and Bill's. She said somehow she could always tell when I got up at night. I'm sure she wanted to be sure I wouldn't run away. But also she knew that sometimes at night a girl's guard would be down more than it was during the day and she often got me to talk at night. When the questions to Debbie got too painful, Debbie said she would say, please don't go there. I don't want to think about my sin. And Ruth would say, Debbie, I have to take you apart so that I can put you back together right. You're not put together right at the moment. And she's tough where she needs to be tough and she's tender where she needs to be tender. Becky recalled Ruth would pick her up from her home and take her out to a restaurant for breakfast before dropping her off at school because she wanted to talk to Becky. Becky said, I tried to be deceptive. But she was good at breaking through it. She would lead the conversation to expose the needs of my heart. She knew what I needed. No matter what answer I gave her, she would counter with questions that would make me come to the right conclusions. If I refused to acknowledge what I knew was right, she would let me stew on it. One night, Becky ran away from home, the middle of the night, and she was out walking the streets out here in Greenville. And it was early in the morning when a man drove by, stopped his pickup, and picked her up and asked her if she needed a ride. And she said yes. And uh, fortunately for her, in the providence of God, this was a man who saw this girl needs help. He didn't take advantage of her. He tried to help her. Found out that she went to church, asked her who her youth pastor was, looked up the address, took her to her youth pastor. Her youth pastor called Ruth, and Ruth came and picked her up and ministered to her that whole morning. Both both girls commented that Ruth was never cross with them. There was never any anger or frustration with them. Both of them said she was the most godly person I had ever met. Debbie said she was the epitome of God's love. I just saw it every time I talked to her. Debbie said in the past, God's love was too abstract. Ruth made it real. She kept loving me while I was trying to get her to hate me. Folks, Christ-like compassion knows the true condition of a person. And Christ-like compassion knows the true remedy. The Lord Jesus admonished, admonished the Laodicean church to come to him for remedies for their spiritual poverty and for their nakedness and their blindness. Then Christ makes an astonishing statement, one that people have a hard time understanding. He says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. That's a part of compassion as well. 
Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Biblical compassion is not afraid to rebuke and discipline those it loves any more than a surgeon is afraid to do surgery. When it's needed, you do it. It's for the best interest of the other person. In fact, biblical love demands that rebuke and discipline be administered when needed. The testimony of Christ himself with these seven churches is a powerful proof of that. Other mother knew their true remedies. Becky told me that one time she stole some narcotics from a medical doctor. She was working in the office doing some cleanup and some light chores. And she stole some narcotics. And Ruth got the truth out of her and drove her to the office to make it right. She knew the remedy. She knew what had to happen to get this girl to face her sin. The doctor who had was trying every way he could to minister to uh, Becky was deeply disappointed. And it broke his heart that she was so deceptive. And it was good for her to see that. That somebody else cared about her in that way. Becky had a lot of fights with her parents and was trying to get kicked out of her Christian school. Ruth picked up on her stubbornness one night at church when she was in particular in some wrangles with her parents and was really creating problems at school. And Ruth took her to an office before the church service started and she said, we are not leaving this office until something happens. And Becky said, I knew she meant it. So I talked. She said, not many people could have gotten away with that methodology, but I knew with her I'd better get serious. Here's a woman who knew the remedy. She knew that girl needed to get this out in the open. And she wasn't leaving until that happened. Ruth knew when a girl needed comfort and she knew when a girl needed confrontation. Folks, biblical compassion isn't a matter of balancing comfort with correction. Biblical correction doesn't need to be balanced with comfort and vice versa. Biblical wisdom administers the right measures of correction and comfort for each situation. In all cases, fleshly correction and fleshly comfort are equally destructive. Biblical compassion knows the true condition and administers the true remedy. When there's a brother, who, a Christian brother, who has personally wronged you, then we courageously and compassionately follow Matthew 18. When the offense of a brother is not against you, but perhaps against other people or against the church or against God. There are many other scriptural tools, tools that need to, that are available. Rebuke and chastening and church discipline. The scriptures do not allow us to ignore sin in our own lives or in the lives of other people. We're to compassionately address the needs of our brothers and sisters. Well, I believe that Ruth Morgan's testimony shows what true biblical compassion looks like, and it moves very deftly between toughness and tenderness. Biblical compassion doesn't ignore problems. It seeks to address genuine needs, especially spiritual needs, whenever possible. Jesus did not leave people where he found them. Everywhere he went, he was alert to genuine needs, and he did something about them. This compassion, like Christ, completes the pillar of core values. It blends that brotherly kindness and that love into a beautiful crown of Christian character. It is a final component in integrity. And folks, a man is not complete without it. Just like you and I are not complete without commitment to Christ, we're not complete without courage for Christ, we're not complete without compassion like Christ. To have integrity, to have wholeness, we must have them all. 
And we must remind ourselves and those to whom we minister that we must regularly explore the farm and diligently work it to cultivate the virtues that underlie all of this. My burden for teaching these sessions and for writing this book on which all of this is based is that you will be able to see more clearly what Christ-likeness looks like. And to be able to express it in the vocabulary of Scripture, Peter's list of essential virtues. Virtue is best taught when a vocabulary of virtue exists within a culture of virtue. God intended for our families. He intended for our churches. He intends for our Christian organizations to create an environment in which the members, especially the leaders, intentionally make character connections out of daily experiences of life. That's a culture of virtue. And my prayer is that God may use these sessions and the book upon which they're based to instill in you a vocabulary of virtue. So that the words are on your tongue of adding knowledge and arete and self-control and endurance and godliness and brotherly kindness and courage and commitment and love and compassion and all of those are part of your vocabulary. And you see them as essential parts of Christ-likeness. While I am praying that God will use these sessions and this book to give you a vocabulary of virtue. I also pray that God will use you to create a culture of virtue wherever you are. And that you will be making character connections in the lives of the people that you lead and the people that you are around. And that you will be involved in God's mission, His mission of love to redeem and restore fallen men to the likeness of Jesus Christ, to the praise of His glory. This is what this is all about. God making disciples of us so we can be disciple-makers for Him. And by that, demonstrate that we love God with all of our hearts and our neighbor as ourself. Folks, that is integrity. That is Christ-like character. May God help us to have it.